Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Upwards podcast. I'm Dan Hummel. One of the joys of working here at Upper House is getting to partner with other organizations who share our values, uh, but are serving other communities. One of those organizations is Science for the Church, uh, a national organization that is looking to equip churches to better engage with mainstream science uh, in order to renew the church. And uh, we have worked with Science for the Church for a few years now. And the conversation you're about to hear is between one of its co-founders and one of my friends, uh, Greg Kutsona, and the quite well-known mathematician and, uh, and Christian apologist, John Lennox. And Greg and John are going to have a conversation that spans pretty broadly, but includes discussion of John's Christian journey and many of the main topics in the faith and science conversation as it's happening today. And we're hoping that this is one of many future partnership episodes with Science for the Church. So with that said, here is an upwards conversation between Greg Kutsona and John Lennox. Well, welcome. Today I'm talking with Dr. John Lennox, Oxford mathematician and apologist extraordinaire. More specifically, Dr. Lennox is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford, Emeritus Fellow in Mathematics and the Philosophy of Science at Oxford as well. He is author of several books, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Can Science Explain Everything? And most recently, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. The upcoming film, Against the Tide, features Dr. Lennox's thought, and it will be showing on November 19th, 20th, and 23rd. So uh, Dr. Lennox, let me introduce myself. I'm a co-founder and co-director of Science for the Church. It's a nonprofit that seeks to bring the resources of science to Christian congregations for the sake of spiritual growth. Put another way, at Science for the Church, we are cultivating a stronger church through meaningful dialogue with mainstream science. I'm also a lecturer in religion, philosophy, and humanities at California State University, Chico. So welcome, Dr. Lennox. Thank you very much indeed. Delighted to be on the air with a university colleague. Ah, yes. Well, and as we'll get to in a moment, another fan of the writer, Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis. So uh, I have a subtle promo behind me for one of his books that's faced out. So uh, Dr. Lennox, as you, as I said in the intro, uh, Science for the Church is particularly interested in this connection between scientists and Christian congregations or Christian life. So this is probably going to be a little bit of a longer answer, but I wonder, can you tell, uh, can you tell me about how you became a Christian, or I believe actually you grew up in a Christian home. So when did Christian faith become, you know, something that was 
your own uh, decision or was there a particular point that that happened? How did you become a scientist and how have those two, Christian faith and science, come together in your life? Well, Christianity for me started with my parents and their Christianity was credible. They lived it. And not only did they live it, it was for them an endless source of stimulation. So the way in which they presented it to me was absolutely fascinating. They encouraged me, of course, to think about the Bible and the stories and their implications, but they encouraged me to look at other worldviews as well because they felt I needed to know what, so to speak, what the competition was. Mm. But the wonderful thing about my parents was that they gave me space to think for myself. They didn't force Christianity down my throat. So as I grew up, I was making decisions for myself. So when I came to university in 1962 to Cambridge, I knew where I stood. And I believed that the Christian faith was true. And therefore, I made a conscious decision that I wouldn't fudge it or duck it. Mm. I would open myself to questioning, and I would defend it as best I could. Mm. And I spent my life doing that. So I owe a great debt to my parents and mm. the, the fact that they didn't try to force me into a mold, because many of my contemporaries in Northern Ireland at the time the moment they got away from home, any semblance of Christianity disappeared because there'd be no inner conviction about it. Wow, that, that sounds like the kind of environment that you could explore your faith and that you could um, discover what God's truth was about it through, if you, if you're, if you uh, follow the metaphor, the book of nature and the book of scripture, perhaps. That, um, that is correct. And, and uh, both of those things were very important to me from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in many things. I, I was very good at arithmetic at school. So they tell me, mm-hmm. and I always find, found mathematics pretty easy, but there was a time when I wanted to be a linguist because I loved grammatical structure in Latin mm-hmm. and in modern languages. And then I decided that because I'd become a ham radio operator, I, I wanted to do electrical engineering, but somebody, my headmaster told me that, I might have a chance to get into Cambridge if I did mathematics. And that's why I ended up doing mathematics. Wow. Well, I I was uh, impressed through the film and through reading uh, your book, Has Science Replaced God? Or sorry, Can can Science Explain Everything? That you know French and Russian, at least. Sounds like Latin as well. So uh, I can see that you enjoy languages. There's probably a a few more in your well, my main, my main language is German, actually. I, oh. I have used German a great deal, and it's probably followed by French and then Russian and then Spanish, but I don't speak them all equally well. Yeah. But German, I can do virtually anything in German I can do in English, and that's been extremely useful. I'm sure. You're in the humanities, and you'll understand that to get a glimpse into the continental mind, if you can read and speak German, it opens up an entire new world of rich literature. Yeah, so I'm very I, thankful for that. I studied in Tübingen for a year, actually, um, and oh, learned German you? there. Yeah. Well, I studied in Würzburg for a year and also in Freiburg, and then oh. I had a year in Vienna. 
Well, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but there's a friend of mine, a colleague here at Cal State, Chico, who's a mathematician fluent in German and just uh, translated one of Boltzmann's papers that had never been translated before. He so said really? It was, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely an amazing experience. So, uh, Well, I did a lot of translating from Russian into English of mathematics yes. in earlier days. Well, there was a question I was going to get to later, but let's do it now since we're talking about Russian. Uh, in the film, there's many, many fascinating parts. And actually, let me just give a little overview of the film just to make sure those who are listening you know, have a sense about it. So uh, Against the Tide is the film. It's the story of uh, Dr. Lennox's stand against the tide of contemporary atheism and its drive to relegate belief in God to society's catalog of dead ideas. And uh, as we view the film, we watch you in a dialogue with the actor and director Kevin Sorbo and you journey from Oxford, particularly uh, the bird and the baby, uh, the eagle and the child, where C.S. Lewis used to meet with the Inklings, to Jerusalem, to the Galilee, and then back to Oxford. I'm going to go back to an overview of the film in a minute, an overview idea that I had as a summary. But I wanted to ask you, one of the interesting parts of the film for me was your connection, I believe it was with, when it was the Soviet Union and you taught in Russia, or please correct me if that's not quite right, but one of the things that was so interesting is you were concerned, I mean, deeply troubled by atheism and its effect on the Eastern Bloc, and that maybe there's a way in which today the West is moving away from our roots in Christian you know, faith and Christian ideas and so on and moving toward and atheism. So do you see us slipping away from some of those roots, and are you concerned about that? Oh, sure. Uh, It used to be said somewhat whimsically that uh, there's materialism in the East and materialism in the West, and the only difference is we've got the material. But certainly (laughs) at the philosophical level, I think that the kind of atheism I saw demonstrated in Eastern Europe, particularly in the German Democratic Republic, and then subsequently in Russia Mm. and Ukraine. There's a lot of it in academia today, because in the end, there has been a rejection of the creator in the name of enlightenment and science and so on. So there is a huge danger. And it's therefore important to go against the tide, and hence the title of the film. Yes, yes. And I, I would just say that um, this is going to, sometimes I say this sounds like a joke. I grew up in a non-Christian home, read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, took a couple years wrestling with that as a teenager, and I went to UC Berkeley and became a Christian. So that almost sounds like a punchline, right? But I love Berkeley, but there was this assumption that if you were, um, you know, a person of uh, moderate or above intellectual capabilities, the concept of God was dead. And uh, my own family was very influenced by the philosophy of Ayn Rand, who, you know, was an atheist Mm -hmm. and uh, also believed basically that, you know, belief is for those, for the weak-minded. So I thought, I found that an interesting tie for you. And I think for those of my generation, which I'm, sl- I'm somewhat younger than you, um, they m- may not understand that connection between, say, uh, you know, communism as it exists in various places like Russia and so on, and the rejection of, uh, of God. So I found that really fascinating. Uh, do you want to add anything else? I have another question about the film for you, but I, if there's anything else you want to say, please do. No, not really, but I think your analysis is correct. 
it surprises me, of course, uh, that if you know anything about intellectual history, this rejection of God uh, contemporary is is very superficial because, in fact, it was the Judeo-Christian tradition that gave us the great universities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think of my own University of Oxford, its motto is Dominus Illuminatio Mea, the Lord is my illumination, and Harvard, Veritas, mm-hmm. they have shortened their original motto, which used to be Veritas in Christo et Ecclesiae, truth in the church and in Christ. Yeah. And the founders of our great universities saw absolutely no conflict intellectually between the rationality of God and the rationality of the universe, and they explored them. So I think the contemporary rejection has all kinds of different roots that have to do with the Enlightenment uh, to religion gone bad in Christendom and to the gradual rebellion intellectually against God that we've seen since then. Yes. Well, and I think that's, uh, for me, one of the reasons that C.S. Lewis was so uh, such an important figure. In his inaugural address at Cambridge, he talked about that, you know, how you divide the times, right? How you divide the ages and periods of thought, and how we had moved to understanding human beings as a machine as a way of interpreting, shall we say, the scientific revolution and how dangerous that was and what that could result in. Yeah, so, Lewis uh, yeah, I'm, boy, I, now I've got, go ahead. Yes, please. Lewis was prescient, I think, and that's why some scientists hate him because <laughs> he, he saw through the kind of scientism that mm-hmm. he predicted would engulf us, and it has, the idea that science is the only way to truth. And he was very clear on analyzing that, that science has its limits and so on. Yes. And that's why I found him enormously helpful, particularly because I have no idea what it's like to be an adult and not a Christian, but he did. Yes. And I needed a a kind of guide to what it feels like to walk in an atheist's shoes and to come to wrestle with Christianity from the outside. So I've learned a massive amount from C.S. Lewis. Well, Dr. Lennox, I, I would tell you that, of course, uh, as I mentioned earlier, his, as you know, the full name is Clive Staples Lewis, and I have decided to canonize him as St. Clive, just so you know. So that's my well, that's uh, right. moniker. For I, I, I'll second that. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go back to the film, but this I, I want to make sure the segues fit really well. Um, and this one is going to be an easy one. I had a couple of quotations that I thought you might want to respond to. This one I know you like because it's in your book from Lewis. Men became scientific because they expected a law of nature and they expected a law in nature because they believed in a legislature, legislator. And if I can just add to that what I find to be a really important parallel quote, this is from Charles Towns, the Berkeley Nobel laureate, Quote, for successful science of the type we know, we must have faith that the universe is governed by reliable laws and further that these laws can be discovered by human inquiry. I guess this is more of just uh, sort of a softball pitch. Respond to those. Uh, What do they evoke for you? Well, it may be softball, but it's extremely uh, important and it's hardball for a lot of people Mm. because what that's pointing up is the faith that all scientists have to have. Now, these days, very frequently, science and faith are pitched as enemies, which is sheer nonsense because faith is 
they're being understood by many people as a result of Dawkins and Hitchens and so on as believing where there's no evidence. And that's blind faith. That isn't faith. Faith comes from the Latin fides, from which we get fidelity. So it has an element of trust and reliability. And the big question that Lewis himself asked years and years ago mm-hmm. was, uh, how can you trust your mind to do science? Now, the rise of science, as he said, men became scientific because they expected law and nature, and they expected law and nature because they believed in a legislator. He was there citing Alfred North Whitehead, who was a great philosopher and historian of science, and telling us, and most historians agree with it today, that modern science is really the gift to the world of the Christian church. Mm-hmm. and. Peter Harrison, who eventually became Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford, and I know quite well now in Australia, unfortunately, we lost him. Mm. He actually a great goes historian, further. by the way. Yeah. Yes, Sorry he's, a brilliant, yeah. he's a brilliant historian. He goes further and he points out that it wasn't only the, the fundamental belief in a creator, which was biblical, or the belief that the universe is contingent. God could have made it any way he liked. But another contribution was made in the 17th century by the reformers in their attitude to the interpretation of Scripture. We must go and see exactly what it says and not bring a preconceived uh, paradigm to bear on it. And Kepler's the notable example of that. Mm -hmm. So that there's a deep connection between uh, science, modern science that is, and Christianity. And the great Nobel Prize winner you mentioned, Charles Townes, was stating exactly what's right, that here you have the grounding for doing science. Why would I bother doing science? And the interesting thing about that is, and I investigated in several of my books, is if you take the atheist view It doesn't give you a grounding for rationality because it tells you that you're doing science with a mind which is equal to the brain, which I reject, but if you allow it for the moment. And the brain's the end product of a mindless, unguided process. And I have said to many of my colleagues, some internationally famous scientists, I said, look, if you knew that the computer with which you do your calculations was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? And I have always received the answer, no. Mm. So I say, I see you have a problem. And that's what resonates with me, that the universe is word-based. Mathematics is a language. In the beginning was the word, or the word was God. That resonates, that makes sense. The atheistic genesis of the universe makes no intellectual sense. And Lewis makes this point powerfully that any argument that invalidates reason cannot be true because you use reason to reach it. Right. And the, the whole, I almost put miracles up behind me because that argument in chapter three of the uh, self-defeating, uh, the naturalism is self-defeating is such yes, a Yes, that's correct. And that's a very important argument today. I I have been very pleased to see it revived, not only by Christians like Alvin Plantinga, but by atheists like Thomas Nagel. I mean, that that is extremely interesting. There is a problem with naturalism. Yeah. 
I just taught a core of a one. I was a guest lecturer at a Duke university course on Lewis. We had a, I was working from a chapter I wrote uh, in a book I wrote on Lewis and discussing this question of naturalism and was it rational? And I have to say, I was uh, very impressed with the level of engagement um, and that not all of the students had imbibed the naturalistic. Well, that's very good to hear from yeah. Duke. I'm, I'm pleased I've been to Duke too. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Lawrence, I have another uh, quotation that somehow when I thought of it, I thought of you, and it goes a little bit different direction, but I think it's complementary. This is from uh, Eugene Wigner. The phrase oh, yes. is the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, right? And, you know, it's another way of saying, why should this work? Why should this why should math or maths work throughout uh, the, uh, you know, the universe, throughout the cosmos? Uh, is that another support for your belief? Oh, in that's, a very, that's a very important observation. And uh, Wigner made it in a, in a famous paper of that title in 1961. And it's a bit like Einstein's comment that the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Mm. Victor and Einstein were clever enough to see that there's a problem here. How is it that a mathematician thinking in her mind in terms of abstract thought can come up with an equation that somehow appears to help us understand what's going out there on out there in the universe. And of course, it's unreasonably effective yeah. if you're an atheist. Right. It is reasonably effective if you're a Christian like me, because the reason that mathematics works is simply this, that the same God who created the universe out there, so to speak, is ultimately responsible for creating the human mind that's understanding it. So that fits and there again, you're right. I find these things extremely supportive. Indeed, I feel that some of the most powerful arguments against atheism don't come from the results of science so much as the fact that we can do science. Mm. And uh, I've done a considerable amount, as you know, of trying to explore these things and make them accessible, particularly in that smaller book, Can Science Explain Everything? Yes. Yeah. Well, by the way, I, I just want to put a promo out for that book because uh, it's been used by the congregations that uh, we work with uh, who want to engage science and faith. And that's uh, a great book for the layperson. I mean, this actually wasn't in my set of questions. I, I, it's on the cutting room floor, you might say, but um, you do such a good job of communicating to uh, people who aren't specialists, which is really, really difficult. That's and, because at heart... I'm a humanities person as well mm. as a scientist. You see, one of the things that has really helped me in life is the fact that my mentor uh, in my late teenage and throughout life, who became a colleague and a co-worker, was a professor of Latin and Greek. Mm. And he introduced me to the classical world. And so the humanities are as important to me as the natural sciences. Mm. And being a linguist, that fits with the mathematics because it's a specialized language. And therefore, the idea of clear explanation is very important. C.S. Lewis once said, as you probably know, I will be understood. <laughs> and that has been a kind of motto for me. 
uh, he also said that if a person cannot explain uh, what they believe in words that people can understand, either they don't believe it or they don't understand it. Right. That was. So, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No. No. I'm constantly looking for ways of stories that aren't arbitrary, but enable us to get a grasp on difficult concepts. Lewis was a genius at it. Oh, he, he, he is the greatest uh, at that, that I know of. I mean, he had so many great images. And uh, I, I was think you were, might be referring to that essay, or that lecture he gave to Anglican youth pastors, where he said if there should be an exam for every ordination that's where you right. tra- translate yes. things, right? Into yes, the common language. And uh, oh boy, we could really get lost in Lewis. But I loved in the Socratic uh, society, his response to Dr. Pittenger, where he says, you know, I have always wanted to speak for the people, right? And I've spoken in, quote, vulgar language, to use, you know, from the Latin. Yes, uh, yes, sure. And that means that I'm going to have to round off some edges, which is hard for academics. I've given different, uh, I don't know, presentations where I've talked to academics and said, we need to learn from Lewis because we need to communicate if we have great ideas, especially as uh, people of Christian faith. And in addition, we have to realize there's going to be a loss because it's not going to sound as precise, but also academics like to hide sometimes behind their language. And Oh, I fear they do. They mm-hmm. do indeed. And you, and you don't want, you don't do that at all. I mean, you're, you have a boldness about you, which I think is really compelling. A thought can be both clear and deep. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Sometimes people have the impression that unless they use virtually unintelligible high-flown language, they're not really coming across as intellectuals. And a lot of it is human pride, of course. Yes, yeah. Lewis wanted to speak clearly and to articulate profound ideas at levels that people could grasp part of them. And that really is a goal. And he's a model for, for me in that way. Well, that really came out of his Christian faith. Um, you know, with the, it seems to me as I've read his biographies uh, when he was doing his lectures for the RAF, the Royal Air Force, he had to speak to people that weren't his Oxford undergrads. Right. And that's, he that's learned correct. what they do. He studied what they thought about words, which is really fascinating. I think uh, I was asked to do an endorsement for against the tide um, again, which is opening on, are showing November 19th, 20th, and 23rd. And so here's what I wrote about Against the Tide. I want to see if you think this is accurate uh, and does it work for you. Against the Tide movingly presents the profound and provocative ideas of Oxford mathematician John Lennox and why it's irrational to conclude that science disproves God. Does, uh, does that work for you and, or how would, and how would you respond? Well, I believe that's true. So <laughs> it works for me. I think that's a, a fairly objective statement about the film. And that, that is the whole purpose. And I want to step into the public space and give people something to think about because we get so much of the other stuff. And it's not politically correct to go in the direction that I go very often. So I just feel it's extremely important to articulate these things in the name of, of free speech and what universities stand for. Yes, yes. It's interesting. I'm, I'm uh, musing about something. Uh, I teach a class on science and religion at least twice a year here at Cal State Chico. And 
there are about a hundred students throughout the year that do this. And I do an exercise um, where I have a, ta- a, a video that they watch from Richard Dawkins, why I am a militant atheist. It's his TED talk and Francis Collins's talk about the language of God. And I have the students evaluate their, uh, these two talks. And I say, you know, which one was more rational? What, who proved their case better? And uh, it's interesting. This is a state university. I can tell you that about 45%, according to the surveys I've taken of hundreds of students, about 45% say they're Christian. So it's not uh, predominantly Christian, but uh, plurality of Christians. Still, many are not uh, Christian believers. The, the majority of people, however, in my class will say that Collins, as a Christian, made more sense than Dawkins, that his arguments were better, and that they were convinced that he talked about faith, not about, sorry, about science, and that the science was supportive of his faith. So uh, maybe I'll have to just throw in one of your lectures as well and do the same exercise, but I, I think it'll come out the same way. And it's, I say that as a test, you know, like, now I've done this with probably five, 600 students, and it's, it's fascinating to me, uh, and I think you do a really amazing job of this, when you present the Christian faith with um, boldness, with clarity, it is its own authenticator. And that I think that's, that, that's very important. And uh, talking about your class, why don't you throw in the debate between me and Dawkins? So that gives them both sides at once. <laughs> I like that. that's, been, that's, been, that's been used all around the world at universities, schools, and colleges because yeah. it's, it's a public debate. And, and it's very good to encourage critical thought, because that's what you're after. Get them to analyze the arguments and what's weak in Lennox's view, what weak in Dawkins' view and strong and, and vice versa. These these are very good pedagogical methods, I think. Well, and this is a bit of a you know context for the United States, but we're losing a, an ability to actually evaluate arguments well um, and to really hugely see- so it's not only in the u.s yes we are not teaching people to think at school level and it starts at home of course where people are amusing themselves to death as mm. the title of the book once once went and they're glued to tablets and they're rewiring their brains yeah and they're incapable of following rational arguments that are more than 140 characters long <laughs> sadly you're right i agree with you um wow yeah i mean there's so much there and i, I appreciate again the robust way in which you uh, approach the, your presentation so i had a couple of questions related to that the first one is there you have gone up against the most famous atheists uh hitchens and dawkins to be to name two of them uh and there have been a couple times where I've been in environments where I was uh, clearly uh, had antagonism toward what I was saying. Mm. So this is a little bit of, actually, this is not true of, in my, of Chico State. It, those environments have been actually quite good, but other environments. And um, maybe this is just a, a question that you could help with. How do you prepare for those debates? And do they make you nervous? Do you have to ha- work through your nerves or... Anyway, how do you prepare for them? How does it feel to... Well, those are two separate questions. Mm-hmm. The confrontational style debate that was I had with Dawkins and twice and Hitchens twice are demand enormous amount of work. Mm. I mean, in terms of months. 
Mm. I spent hundreds of hours preparing Mm. because the idea of giving a little speech and then they come back on that and you have to respond to that and then you have to sum up. Uh, That's why none of us want to do them anymore because Mm. to do it properly involves so much time input, what if he says X and so on. So it required an enormous amount of work. Now, the question of nerves is an interesting one. Because it seems to me there are two kinds of fear that beset people in these kinds of environment. There's a good kind and there's a less good kind. The less good kind is fear of what people are going to think of me. And that uh, comes with our old human pride and we're all tarred with that. But there's a second nervousness and that is here are these people coming out and there are hundreds, maybe there are thousands, and I'm defending the Christian gospel. Mm-hmm. There's that nervousness of, am I wasting their time? Am I doing a good job? And that's why I was so grateful to have had thousands of people praying for me at the time. And I think we need to break through the first kind of nervousness, but never to lose the second. Mm-hmm. Woe betide folks when they say, I don't care what people think. You need to care what people think because you're trying to communicate with them. But you shouldn't care so much what they think of you. That's a different matter. Right. So uh, that is just a very rough uh, response to this, but they are very formidable experiences. I'd never done anything like it. Before I met Dawkins in in Alabama, I'd never done anything like that before. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, I mean, embedded in what you just said is this sense of, um, I guess, humility and stewardship of uh, the Christian message. And um, do you feel, I mean, is prayer part of your preparation? Oh, very much so. Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier the people who were praying, very much so. Mm-hmm. I think I don't go to win the debate. That mm-hmm. That's the motivation. Mm-hmm. What I go to do, and I was advised to do this by a very senior uh, person in the newspaper industry, a writer, brilliant writer who's very well known. And he said, make sure, whatever you say, that you get your message across. Mm. so that the people, the audience, understands what you stand for. Mm. And that's enormously important because you can very easily react, uh, so to speak, a knee-jerk reaction to what the other person is saying and lose the plot entirely. The other thing is don't get angry Mm -hmm. and be as friendly as possible. I I try as far as possible to befriend people. And sometimes that's very successful. And people who've been very hostile to me at the beginning of a debate have ended up chatting amiably and being friendly because they realize that I'm not against them, so to speak. I am against their ideas, but not against them. And somehow we've got to communicate that. Well, this is, of course, the basic teaching of the Christian Gospels, how our Lord and his apostles behaved. Well, and that is a great um, segue to the another one of my final questions I want to ask. And I, again, I want to thank you for your time, Dr. Lennox, and uh, thank you for this film, Against the Tide, which is coming out. Uh, in the film, it's clear, and in your life, it's clear that you don't want to just talk about a generic God or the God of the 
of the mathematics, but you mm-hmm. want to talk about the God we know in Jesus Christ. So I'm particularly interested for uh, in li- about the resurrection. I was part of a panel for the American Association for the Advancement of Science um, in Washington, D.C., about uh, science and Christianity. And uh, we were, I was on a panel, and we were uh, given a question but from the audience, which was, you know, in the scientific world, it makes no sense to believe in a resurrection. You cannot accept science and believe in the resurrection, which is the center of your faith as a Christian. What do you say to that? And uh, so I, I, I have my answers, but and I'd love for the people who are listening or watching or reading about this to hear your answer. How, as a scientist, do you believe and can you believe in the resurrection of Christ? This objection really is often traced back to David Hume, and uh, who said miracles are violations of the laws of nature. And roughly speaking, we know the laws of nature through the natural sciences, so miracles are out. And that's a confusion of thought. And again, Lewis's book on miracles is extremely helpful. There's one analogy in it that I use all the time. And I find it simple enough that even professors can understand it. And that is, if I stay in a hotel tonight and put $100 in the drawer by my bed, do the same tomorrow night, that's $200. But wake up on the next morning and find only $50. Do I conclude that the laws of arithmetic have been broken or the laws of California have been broken. (laughs) And the point is, I conclude that the laws of California have been broken because I know that the laws of arithmetic have not been broken, Mm. you see. Mm -hmm. And that's the very important thing. The confusion arises as to what we mean by the word law. You know, on the sidewalk in many American cities, you'll see violators will be towed. And that is not the idea when it comes to a law of nature. What are the laws of nature? They are our descriptions of what normally happens. So Newton's law of gravity will say that a dropped apple will fall towards the center of the earth, but that can't prevent, doesn't prevent you catching it in midair and stopping it hitting the ground. And you see, if I was claiming as a Christian that Jesus rose from the dead by some natural process going on in the grave, then it would break laws of nature. But I'm not claiming that at all. I'm claiming that God, the creator, who built the regularities into the universe that we describe by the laws of nature in the first place, he can feed an event into the system. And you see, there's nothing in science that can prevent that. The real problem behind this is the common view that this universe is a closed system of cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my false belief in connection with my hotel bedroom and the drawer. I thought it was a closed system, but it wasn't. A thief was able to get in and put his hand in and take $150. And that analogy can help us to understand that you cannot argue against miracle in principle. Science doesn't stop miracles happening. But then you have to go to the other side, because I'm not going to accept every claim 
for a supernatural event, statues weeping and all this kind of stuff. So we need now to have a look at the positive evidence for the resurrection. Is there, are there grounds to believe that it actually happened? And interestingly enough, in the last two chapters of my book, Can Science Explain Everything? I took David Hume on, both at the level of what I've just told you about miracles being violations of the laws of nature, but also in his discussion of criteria for valid witnesses, which is a very interesting way of approaching it. So those last two chapters of that book are really my attempt to encapsulate how I would go about talking about the resurrection. And in the film, Kevin Sorbo and I visit the garden tomb in Jerusalem, which is not the place where Jesus was buried, but it's like it, and it gives the atmosphere and the idea. And we discuss all of these issues there as far as one can in a film. By the way, your listeners should know I'm writing a book, a guide to accompany the film, to take things deeper that clearly you cannot deal with in depth in a documentary film style. Yeah. When will that be out, Dr. Lennox? As soon as we can get it out. I have it more or less written. (laughs) That's great. Yes, well... I was I, I love the the, the the places that you're at, and I, I thankfully have been able to go to Jerusalem twice. And uh, I remember a really moving communion service at the the Garden Tomb that you're talking yes, about. Um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was really really beautiful. And that you in a way reenacts uh, what a, what a burial uh, would have been like, and therefore what the resurrection itself would would be like. Well, I've taken the time that we've talked about, and I'm really thankful for that. I. I don't know if there's something that you want to say before we wrap up. Uh, One question I would love to ask um, as a final question for me is uh, we are very interested in uh, the public engagement of science uh, or the engagement of science with the church, both locally and globally. Is there any side to that uh, that you would like to address? Like um, we believe, and this is that we found actually statistically that when congregations uh, engage with science, they actually grow not just in their understanding of science, but they grow spiritually uh, all across the board. Um, So that's that's really important to us. And do you have any particular message about the engagement uh, of uh, science with, um, you know, local congregations? A survey was done in England asking why people were leaving the church. The number one answer was they don't answer our questions. Mm. And I think it's vastly important for churches to engage with the questions, not only the questions about science, but the questions arising from our culture and taking them seriously. Now, many pastors have a good education, but it doesn't cover everything. And I encourage pastors to use members of their congregation, get them involved get people into a public dialogue. And I often, you see, instead of giving a sermon, I simply stand up with a piece of paper and said, what are your questions? Mm. People are full of questions. And we ought to do much more of communication by dialogue. This is why I enjoy doing the kind of thing we're doing just now. Mm-hmm. Because it communicates in an idiom that's far more powerful than simply one talking head. 
And that so, would include getting scientists from a congregation up before. That, that would insist on doing that, get yeah. people who are experts and encourage them because it can get them going. Yeah. I do not agree with this idea that the pastor does all the talking in the church. I do a lot of exposition of scripture. It's my chief love. Hmm. We need to use all our gifts and therefore churches need to provide an arena for all the gifted members of the congregation. And that may mean allowing scientists to preach and humanities professors to preach and so on. Mm. It enriches the situation enormously and it's much more credible. Well, I remember uh, I, I was I remember my experience as a pastor in New York City when <laughs> Redeemer Church was exploding, um, and Tim Keller used to finish his sermons by having a question and answer, and that was the way yes, he got right. New Yorkers to engage with him, you know, in a very well, real way. That's the way to do it. But yeah. I would also want to say to congregations that the great weakness that, that I detect is individuals' fear and shame. Hmm. not being able to break the barrier of what if they ask me a question I can't answer. Hmm. And if you don't mind me mentioning it, I've also written a little book called Have No Fear. Uh, it's a very short book out of my own experience, the things that I believe can be said to people to get them through that fear barrier and equip them to be able to give an answer to anybody that asks them a reason concerning the hope that is within them. Many people do not realize the obvious, that that statement by the Apostle Peter has nothing to do with preaching. Always be ready to give an answer to someone that asks you. That's one-to-one conversation. And that's what the churches ought to be encouraging. People find out what the questions are that their friends have, spend time researching answers, and then one after the other, they learn how to deal with these questions. There's no use encouraging people to read a vast book on apologetics because they won't remember anything because it's not real questions coming from their own life's experience. The ability and willingness to answer questions was, for me, it was really powerful as a university student in coming to know the, oh, uh, the truth of the gospel. I mean, that was yes. critical for me. It is. It's critical. And people must learn that if they can't answer questions and they're going to come across questions they can't answer, they should honestly say so. Right. Christians are not defined by saying they are those who can answer every question. People need to see that we're vulnerable and we're human. Mm -hmm. And if we do that and say to folks, look, I don't even really grasp your question, but I love to think about it. Why don't we meet for coffee next week and discuss it? That's a much better way forward. Let's be real rather than pretending to knowledge that we don't have. Mm. That seems like a great place to end. Uh, so is it okay if I just say thank you, Dr. John Lennox, Oxford mathematician and apologist extraordinaire? Thank you very much. It's been a sheer delight to talk with you. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson. And graphic design by Madeline Ramsey.